Hi, this is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. And you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 7 a.m. on Wednesdays. Each week we will interview a history professor with the theme of power and people. Let's get started. To the second ever episode of It's All History to Me here live on Weagle 91.1 FM. Um, if you're joining us live, um, it is Wednesday at 7.01 a.m. Um, and if you're not, it's the time that you're listening to it. Um, today we have a special guest, Dr. Melissa Blair. Um, Dr. Blair completed her undergraduate in both English and history at the University of Kentucky before completing her master's and PhD of history at the University of Virginia. She is the chair of the history department at Auburn and specializes in women's history. She teaches classes on world history, women in American history, and the history of sexuality in the U.S., just to name a few of her subjects. She also wrote a book called Revolutionizing Expectations, Women Organizations, Feminism, and American Politics, 1965 to 1980, detailing local feminist action throughout the time period. Dr. Blair, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. Um, we wanted to get started by discussing just sort of how you got into women's history at first. So just to start out with a very broad and general question, what got you interested in women's history? So what got me interested in history and women's history are slightly different answers. Mm -hmm. um, I was very interested in history ever since I was a little girl. Um, my mom's from Richmond, Virginia. She loves history. So when we'd go and visit my grandparents, we'd go to all kinds of historical sites around Virginia. Um, I am also exactly the perfect age to have been like seven years old when American Girl Dolls came out. <laughs> There's actual like scholarly work now on how many women my age became historians because of those dolls <laughs> and those books. Um, and, and they were huge because it was the only, it was the only historical stuff written for kids that age at that time in the eighties and nineties. And it was all through girls. It was all from a, from a gendered perspective. Um, and so that was, I had always been interested in history. It had always been my thing. Um, I didn't take any women's history classes as an undergraduate, though. There were mm. some weird schedule quirk reasons for that. Um, the one class was always offered at the same time, and it was the same time as women's choir, and I went and I sang instead. Um, but I took a lot of sort of feminist literature classes in my English major, um, and that was really where, from a sort of scholarly perspective, my interest in women and gender came from, um, was really from the English side. Um, but history was always my passion. That was, I never even considered going to graduate school in English. I always mm -hmm. knew that, that history was what I, I wanted to do. And I wanted to put those two things together. Um, I was also just really interested as I got into graduate school in feminism, in what had, in the movement that had made it possible for me to sort of have the life that I had had, right? I, I had the classic 1980s dad who told me I could be whatever I wanted, who let me tag along after him to the hardware store and watch woodworking shows on PBS with him and all that stuff. Um, and I was just really curious about how, how sort of gender norms had changed so substantially. Um, and the last sort of moment that I'll mention, the one that sort of sticks in my brain for me and also outs me as what an enormous dork I am. I placed fourth in the Kentucky State Hist uh, Geography B when I was oh. in the eighth grade. <laughs> and afterwards, after the thing was over, 
all of these middle school social studies teachers, all of these middle-aged women were coming up to me and they were like, honey, we're so proud of you. We were cheering for you. You did great. I had never met any of these women before. <laughs> it was the best a girl had ever done. Wow. And, and one of them eventually told me that, that that was why they were all cheering for me. And as an eighth grader, I was like, oh, okay. But I think that sort of mm -hmm. stuck in the back of my brain of like, this is meaningful to them for some reason that I have done this well. And so I think that that seed got in there very early also. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. Okay, so next, let's see. We've already talked a little bit about who were the people that ignited your passion for history, but can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, I think um, it's... I don't have like that one teacher story. I'm not. Mm -hmm. I'm not the guy at the Oscars who can yeah. like shout oh, yeah, out his yeah. fourth grade teacher. <laughs> um, but I will say, obviously, you know, my mom loves history. Took me, you know, all over the place mm -hmm. when I was a kid. You know, we'd do day trips down to Jamestown or to Williamsburg. Um, go to the historic sites around Richmond itself when I was a kid. So that definitely from a very early age, like one of the first picture books I remember mm, yeah. is like The Little Lost Kitten of Williamsburg that Aww. we bought <laughs> in Williamsburg when we went to Williamsburg when I was like probably six or six. Yeah, um, yeah. And so my mom definitely, very, very early on, this was something that you were interested in. Um, and I think she's she's the main one. And then I just always had... History teachers. I did have good, um, good high school history teachers. Also, my mm -hmm. AP US history teacher um, was a guy named David Jarzuski. We all called him Mr. J. Um, Mr. J was super encouraging. Mm -hmm. Like if the, everybody who had a five on the AP history test, he like took us out to lunch over the Aww. summer after we got our grades and uh, awesome. our scores on the tests. And he was like, "Y'all are really good at this." So he was definitely an encouragement as well. That's really cool. Awesome. So I could shout out a teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Very That's cool. Um, going back to the women's history, what's like a misconception or a common misunderstanding of women's history that you would like to correct? Hmm. So that's a big question. <laughs> um, I mean, I think one of the things that I try to do when I teach women's history is use it as a way to talk about the fact that everything has a history, right? Mm, that, yeah. that, that historically important stuff is not just politicians and wars and elections. I say that as someone who just wrote a book about presidents and elections. <laughs> um, but there's when you focus on and when you center women's experiences, it opens up all of this other stuff that has a really important history that's really important to our sort of day-to-day -day lives, but that might not, that certainly doesn't get into like high school history textbooks, right? right? Because it's not seen as important. Mm. Um, so for example, we talk a lot in my women's history class about changing ideas of parenthood and what, mm -hmm. what being a good mother looks like, right? That is something that has a history. That is something that has changed over time. Mm -hmm. um, and it's important to understand that. Similarly, we talk about the history of dating. That is always yeah. a favorite day. <laughs> um, it's one of my favorite days. I bring part of that lecture even into my world history class because I love it and I think it's really important for students especially college students to see like there is history to everything it's not just this one slice of the human experience that counts as history mm -hmm. and I think women's history because women were excluded from those spaces that traditionally count as quote important mm -hmm. for so long when you study women you have to look at this broader you have to take this broader view 
and look at this other stuff um, that gets really interesting to a lot of students. I remember years ago telling my grandmother that I had just given my lecture on the history of dating. And this is a woman who left school in the sixth grade. This is, I lovingly called her my good Eastern Kentucky grandma. <laughs> um, and she was like, well, if we talked about stuff like that in history class, I might have stayed in school a little longer, right? Uh -huh. It's like making it, everything has a history and everybody can find something in history that speaks to them. And I think when you look at women's history, you have to sort of cast that broader net and it invites more people in. That doesn't really answer your question, but it's <laughs> it's what came to mind. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. And I totally remember from taking your class last spring, the same sort of ideas of I was thinking and broadening my horizons too. And I was like, wow, yeah, uh, specifically with the dating part, but then uh, the two like separate spheres of men and women and how that evolved. I definitely remember thinking like I never really thought about that having a history. And so it was super cool to kind of like uncover that aspect of just where how we've gotten to where we are and I think that that's a fundamental of history and we talked about that on our last episode so totally agree that's a great great point let's see one more question to take us to the first ad break um let's see broadly speaking how do you think gender relates to power Ooh, that's a big question <laughs> um so I'm not going to take it too broad in that I'm going to stay in the American okay. context. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a scholar of U.S. history, so other parts of the world, this, you know, it, this looks very different. Right. Because again, yeah. that's right. And that's part of the thing is that if we look at gender and we look at women's role in society, mm -hmm. especially in relationship to power, which sort of ties into my what I was just talking about. Right. Yeah. Traditional, you know, traditional history, traditionally mm -hmm. important stuff that varies a lot yeah. across the globe and across time mm -hmm. um, in the United States. I think that there have been ways historically, um, and this is true both, this is often talked about just before women had the right to vote, but mm -hmm. has continued to be true in the 20th century and the 21st century, um, that there are ideas about, you know, women's role in society, that private, that separate sphere, mm -hmm. that domestic role, that motherhood mm -hmm. role. And that women have, when they've tried to gain more power in the public sphere, going through those traditional attributes, mm -hmm. arguing as mothers, we right. need to be involved in X, Y, or Z, mm -hmm. whether we have the vote or not. Mm -hmm. That has been historically a very successful path yeah. for American women to try to get more access to power mm -hmm. or to try to, to phrase it slightly different, to try to influence policy. Right. To try to bring about change. Yeah. Um, that has been a very successful route. And it's also a route um, that has been able, especially in the 20th century, to also be effectively used um, by women of color. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, there's a, there's a book that I'm thinking of um, called Mobilizing New York by a scholar named Tamar Carroll. Um, where she talks about how in the early, late 1950s, early 1960s, um, there are these group of this group of mothers, um, largely uh, Puerto Rican mm -hmm. women, um, and their kids in the public city schools in New York City mm -hmm. are not getting any instruction in Spanish. Oh, they're yeah. not really getting taught mm. basic fundamentals of how to speak English, and mm -hmm. so they're not learning. Mm. Um, and like the school is refusing to again, this is like late 1950s. The school is like refusing to provide 
any books in Spanish, is refusing to send the kids home with the books. They weren't allowed to take the books home oh, wow, um, wow. from the schools. Um, and they mobilize, these women mobilize as mothers and mm-hmm. go and make demands of the New York City Public School Board mm-hmm. as mothers. Say, we as mothers mm-hmm. are not allowed, you know, our children are not learning. And so we are here as their mothers to demand that you do better. Right, yeah. Um, and so I think that's been, and but it's interesting because then there's a flip side to that, mm, right? Yeah. The flip side to primarily getting access to and being able to influence policy change using a rhetoric of motherhood mm-hmm. means that the state has always, throughout American history, the government has seen women primarily as mothers. Right, yeah. And so that leads to all kinds of things, whether mm-hmm. we're talking reproductive rights, whether we're talking uh, labor laws and mm-hmm. work conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, the most famous early case of this um, is there's a Supreme Court case from 1908 called Mueller versus Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, in the turn of the 20th century, states were trying to pass laws to regulate working conditions. This is before the New Deal. So there's no minimum wage. There's no maximum hours. Child labor laws are really patchwork and spotty. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot of efforts at the state level to pass laws like that. And the mm-hmm. Supreme Court has thrown out one of those laws in 1905. Mm -hmm. And so in 1908, this group of activists goes back to the Supreme Court and they argue for, they write a law in the state of Oregon that only applies to women. Oh. And they explicitly argue because women are, and this is the language from the, from the brief, because women are quote, actual and potential mothers of the race, the state has a vested interest Mm -hmm. in protecting their health by regulating their work conditions. Wow. And the Supreme Court agrees. Mm. And so that's it's it's a very much a double sided coin. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in that it gives women a, an in, mm-hmm. but it but only that. Yeah, right? it, it right. gives them an in and puts them in a box right. at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. That totally makes sense. And something that still like very, fighting today, very yeah. much still relevant today. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, very cool. All right. So thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the History Radio Hour. It's all history to me. Live on Legal 91.1 FM. Um, if you're just joining us, we ha- today we have Dr. Blair from the History Department discussing her work, but also what has inspired her to get, become a historian. And for this next segment, we will be discussing her new book, um, Dr. Blair's new book entitled Bringing Home the White House, The Hidden History of the Women Who Shaped the Presidency, 1932-1960, is set to release later this year. The book explores the lives of five women at the top of the Women's Division of Republican and Democratic National Committees. So what was your inspiration for this book? Yeah, so it's um, it's a very it's a very good example of how historians do our work. Um, I had a, just a great big question. There was this sort of sense um, in the scholarship, both but written by historians and by political scientists, that after politicians figured out that women didn't vote as a single block in the like late 1920s, like mm-hmm. within about seven or eight years of women getting the right to vote. Um, excuse me, that once they figured out that women didn't vote as a single block, that politicians stopped caring about women voters, Mm. stopped thinking about them until the feminist movement of the late 1960s made them start thinking about them again. Mm. So the argument in 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 the scholarship was there's about 40 years in which women are not really important to the electoral process as women. And I, and I was like, really? That doesn't actually like I'm not sold. And this is and yeah. this is how right, this is how historians do it. We read stuff and we find a hole where we're like, eh, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the question is how did presidential campaigns think about women voters? Mm-hmm. Um, that was where I started. 
which is an enormous question. And as I originally conceptualized the project, it was going to go from the 19, late 19, from the 1920s up through at least the 1980s. Like mm. that was the original, it was going to be this massive sprawling thing. <laughs> um, you start big. I'm looking at Victoria. Yeah. History, both of you are history majors. This is a lesson for you. Start oh, yes. big and narrow. Yes. Uh, that's how it works. Um, and what happened was I was like, okay, so we'll go in chronological order. And so in the spring semester of 2018, um, I had a semester away from teaching to go travel and do research. And so I went to the uh, FDR Presidential Library in upstate New York, uh, to the Truman uh, Library in Kansas City, and to the Eisenhower Library in Abilene, Kansas. And even, and I did them like in that order. So mm-hmm. I went in chronological order. And at the FDR Library, these women that I write about were just jumping off of the page. First of all, mm-hmm. we were we are just straight up wrong. Like the scholarship is straight up wrong. Women oh, wow. are all over these campaigns. Mm. But more importantly, women are running these campaigns. Mm. Um, And so that was how, like, finding them was what sort of pushed it in this more biographical direction, away from just sort of big picture, how do campaigns think about women voters, to what are these five women doing Mm. as integral parts of the leadership team of these campaigns? I'm a women's historian. I study women in politics. I had heard of one of the five women I write about before I started this project. Nobody knows they exist. And so that was amazing. Yeah, that's really cool to get to find that uncovered moment where you're like, wow, I can bring these people back into light and tell their stories. Yeah, absolutely. Completely change the narrative, too. Yeah. That's awesome. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Okay. So who are the women that you discuss in your book specifically, and how exactly did you see these women shape the presidency? Sure. So there's I write about the women who are actually working in the White House. So mm-hmm. I cover the, the elections. Uh, I go from the election of 1932 through the election of 1956, and I talk a little bit about, like, Eisenhower's second term also, mm-hmm. but not very much. Um, and several people have asked me, other historians and stuff have asked, me they're like well why aren't you talking about the losers and I'm oh. like because I kind of don't care <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah I mean, like what I'm interested in is the ideas about gender that these women bring into meetings with the president right like, that they bring into the White House into mm-hmm, the Oval mm-hmm. Office that makes sense so it's kind of irrelevant for me what Adelaide Stevenson was thinking about women in 1952 right, like right. I kind of don't care <laughs> um so I write about therefore because of that I write about four uh, Democratic women and one Republican women, just mm-hmm. because that's the president's. Thing. Right. So there are three women that work for uh, FDR. Mm-hmm. The first is a woman named Molly Dusen. She's the one I had heard about before. There was mm-hmm. a biography of her written actually in the 1980s. Okay. She was close personal friends with both Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's she's the one that I knew was out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and she also, the, the structures that she sets up for the women's division. So basically both national parties had a women's division, mm-hmm. had a, group, a part of the DNC or the RNC that was designed to reach out to women voters. Mm-hmm. And what Dusen winds up doing in starting in those earliest two campaigns, the 32 and 36 campaigns, is that the women's division winds up creating the majority of the print media for those campaigns. Oh, 90% wow. of it wow. in 1936. Hmm. Um, and there's great stuff in the archives about like, if the men would like, if the men's division would like our flyers, here's how much we're going to charge them. And no, we won't <laughs> give you that many at a time because we don't think you'll use them. And like, just, yeah, oh, like, that's awesome. They own it. 
Yeah, yeah. They they are running these mm-hmm. campaigns. That's awesome. And then, so Deucent retires after the 36th campaign. The other two women who work for Roosevelt, there's a woman named Dorothy McAllister, mm-hmm. who's at the head during the 1940 campaign, a woman named Gladys Tillett, um, who's the one Southerner I write about. She's from North Carolina, um, who work, who's at the top um, during the 44 campaign. Mm-hmm. The woman who works for Truman is a woman named India Edwards. Um, she's fascinating. Um, very much has to fight to maintain the kind of power she has, mm-hmm. but also Truman, she's really loyal to Truman. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the campaign team describes her as the only person besides the president who thought the president would win in 1948, right? Wow. That's the famous Dewey wow. defeats Truman yeah, campaign yeah. where the news, everybody thinks he's going to lose. Everybody thinks he's going to lose. Mm. She is even of the staff, like the rest of the DNC is like, we're not sure about this. Um, she's like, nope, going to do it. And yeah. women stay with the Democrats, and that's really seen as mm-hmm. one of the turning points, one of the swing vote blocks that helps oh, him yeah. win that. Truman thinks so much of her that he actually offers her the chairmanship of the entire Democratic committee in 1951. Wow. wow. She turns him down mm. because she says that the men of the Democratic Party are too sexist to work for a woman. Mm, wow, She's yeah. right about that. Yeah. Not, uh, the Republican, the RNC has one three-year woman chair in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Other than that, neither major party has a woman chair until the 2010s. Wow. Oh, wow. And Edwards was offered it in 51. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And so then, and so those are my four Democrats. And then the woman who worked for uh, Eisenhower is a woman named Bertha Adkins. Okay. Um, and so, and she, even though she's in a different party, she very much follows the patterns and builds the structures that the Democrats had had that had mm-hmm. worked so well for them for 20 years. Mm-hmm. She copies all of that starting in 1950. She actually hired by the RNC in mm-hmm. 1950 um, and, and to basically copy what wow, the yeah. Democrats have been doing with women because it's working so yeah. well. Very cool. Very cool. Super exciting. Definitely a great teaser for your book. Yeah, <laughs> they're great. Having previously covered more local activism, what was the biggest similarity that you found between women women in bringing home the White House and revolutionizing expectations? Yeah, and sorry for the title of the first one. It is a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... What interest, what holds these two projects together for me as a scholar is that I am interested in women in politics and women in political power, right? That's what, how do women make change? Mm-hmm. That's, that's my sort of core interest as a historian. Um, and so that's the through line between the two projects. Um, other than that, they're very different. Mm-hmm. Um because I'm looking in the first book, which which was my dissertation and then became the, the first book, um, I'm looking a lot more at the real nitty gritty day to day of. And so I have really good evidence of exactly what they're doing and how it's playing out on mm-hmm. the ground, like what's working and what's not in each of the three cities that I studied for the first book. That's what I don't have for the second book, right? The second book, I'm looking at these women who are working out of Washington, who are working in the White House. I can see the stuff that they mailed to women all over the country. I can see how the size of their mailing lists grows and shrinks. Mm -hmm. Um, I can see some of the correspondence coming back into Washington from those women out in the rest of the country. But I don't have that kind of granular... Okay, so how did this actually work? Oh, yeah. In yeah. a particular place, right? Mm-hmm. Like, did, were these women who were being tasked with both the Democratic women and Adkins repeatedly used this phrase that you are the saleswomen of the party, 
right? That's mm-hmm. why it's called bringing home the White House, especially mm-hmm. in the post-World War II part of it. They are actively trying to politicize the suburban mid-century home, the baby right, boom household. Right. They're saying that women should be going out and having political conversations with their friends and neighbors. And we're going to mail you postcards and mail you flyers that give you the talking points to mm. enable you to do that. Yeah. I don't know how that actually worked, like, on uh the local level, right? So that's the difference Mm. in terms of where I'm looking. Right. I tell – it's it's a very different story in Mm -hmm. that way. That's interesting. It's always interesting to think about what historians do have and what they don't have to work with to make their stories – work for a book model and like it's super cool you've been able to find the hidden things on one side but then the practical like you know how did this like impact you don't have because people don't write about it yeah and that definitely makes you think about like what are you leaving behind for people to find later and like your day-to-day actions do have more value than you'd expect yeah absolutely and I also think like one of the things that historians are always thinking about is, right, we can't do everything in a single book. Mm -hmm. So, like, I am hopeful, hopeful that by writing this book, I then inspire some graduate student out there somewhere to be like, okay, so let's go look at my state level or my county level DNC records, RNC records, Mm -hmm. and see how all this stuff that that Blair's writing about Mm. actually played out here in this place. Ah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, like, you can do it. It's just a different project than what I was doing. That makes sense. Um, That makes sense. And that's how, like, you know, students always come into my office and they see all of these books. (laughs) And they're like, oh, my God, all of these books. And I'm like, that's how we talk to each other. Yeah, right? That's, right. that's that's what the field is is that we have these conversations with each other mm-hmm. through our books. Yeah. Um and so that's that that's the hope with a book like this is like here's this massive thing that we didn't know existed. Yeah. Other people go flush it out. Yeah, that makes sense. Adding on to the historiography? Yes. Yes. Historiography. Historiography. There we go. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. Yeah. So, we're going to go to another ad break, but we'll see you shortly afterwards. Welcome back to It's All History to Me, Auburn University's uh, History Radio Hour, live here at 7 a.m. on Wednesdays on Weagle 91.1 FM. If you're just joining us, we're here with Dr. Blair from the Auburn University History Department discussing her current research or and current publishing books. Um, we're going to jump right back into this discussion um, on bringing home the White House. Uh, what do you think these stories say about the relationship between women in power? So that's a <clears throat> excuse me. That's a great question. Um, and I think what's in, what's most interesting that I found in doing this research is that this period in the middle decades of the 20th century, when this handful of women as heads of the women's division have a lot of a lot of face time with the president, a lot of visibility, they're mm-hmm. having lots of one-on-one meetings in the White House, coincides with a real trough in terms of policy achievements for women. Um, And so what's going on here, I write about this quite a bit in the book, is that all how these women get in the room is they are articulating and are grounding their activism in what scholars describe as difference feminism. That women are inherent, a belief that women are inherently different from men and that therefore that's why they should be in the public space is to bring those different Mm. things forward. Mm -hmm. And what I really discovered through this project is that difference feminism is great for getting you a seat at the table. And it is terrible for policy outcomes oh, yeah. because this system of the women's divisions collapses mm. in the 1960s. And that, like basically the Democratic Party, the DNC, disbands their women's division in 1953 when they're first out of the White House for the first time in 20 years. Mm. Um, and then um, in 1960, the 
The RNC keeps it through about 1962 or so, but the woman who worked, Adkins, the woman who worked for Eisenhower, gave an oral history in the late 60s, and she talks a lot about how Nixon, when he's running for president in 60, um, sort of ran his own campaign, didn't really tap into those RNC networks. So this, the, the, the structures of the women's division at the sort of heart of presidential campaigns is really dead oh, yeah. by about 1960, mm-hmm. 1961. And in 1961, we get things like the creation of the President's Commission on the Status of Women. By 1963, yeah. we've got the Equal Pay Act. By 1964, we've got Title VII of the Civil Rights Act that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex uh, in employment. And so, like, there's this weird, like, which form of feminism, which way of articulating power for women and a place for women is ascendant, changes, over time, mm-hmm. and those different flavors of feminism get you different things. Oh, yeah. Um, and so that that was really interesting. It was kind of challenging to think through and write through. That was mm-hmm. probably one of the one of the more challenging parts of the books to book to sort of think through and write through. Like I can tell the story all day long, but mm-hmm. dealing with okay, so these women are there, and they have all this visibility and all this power. And it's when they're not there anymore that we get the policy change. Right. Like yeah. Make, yeah. thinking my way through that mm-hmm. was one of the harder things to sort of wrap my head around in the book. But I think gets to your question really well about like, you know, what is it? What do we get by having these women there? And we get visibility. Yeah. But we don't get a whole lot of substantive policy change that will improve women's lives. Right. That makes sense. Building off of that question, would you say that it's because of these women that those policy changes in the future are able to be made? Or do you think that they're completely two separate tracks? Um, I think... I think there's some connection there because there are enough women who are bridging that chronological divide Mm -hmm. um, who saw the fact that difference feminism wasn't getting them anywhere. Right. And so we're like, and there's a great book uh, called Gendered Citizenship by a historian named Rebecca DeWolf who traces like the women who are equality feminists who are supporting, for example, the Equal Rights Amendment, the Mm -hmm. ERA, all the way through this time period in the 30s and 40s and 50s, Mm -hmm. right? Those women are always there. So many of them are in Congress. A lot of the women in Congress, there's not many women in Congress, but Mm -hmm. there's about 10, give or take, throughout the 40s and 50s. Um, A lot of those women Mm -hmm. are, not all of them, but a lot of them are are more sort of equality feminist sides. And so I think, yeah, they're, in some ways, they're kind of biding their time. Right, Um, right. But I also think, right, in the context of the baby boom, in the context of the early Cold War, Mm -hmm. when traditional gender roles are being really heralded as a thing that makes us different from the Soviet Union, as Mm -hmm. a thing that makes us better than the Soviet Union, a political rhetoric drawing on the sameness of men and women would not have gone anywhere Okay, in the yeah. 1950s and yeah. late 1940s. Like how the women in that moment are articulating it. I both, I know from reading their own correspondence and personal writings that they believe it, mm-hmm. but it's also what works in that moment. Right. And so this is why I say that the different ways of attacking, of getting women power, of getting policy changes ebb and flow given the broader context. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, cool. Um, what do you hope people will take away from reading your book? I mean, I think the biggest thing is just that these women existed Mm -hmm. um, and that women were there and were important and politicians were thinking about them in this time period when, again, all of the scholarship has said nobody in politics cared about women as women Mm -hmm. and for this, like, 30-year chunk of time. Mm -hmm. And then here came the feminists and, like, made them start thinking about these things again. I'm like, there are always women there. Yeah. And there are women with a great deal of of influence, at least personally, to mm-hmm. try to push the agenda. A lot of what they wind up doing in the um, 
in the post-World War II part of the book is um, getting policymaking jobs for mm. women, um, sort of assistant secretaries of this and that, um, some a handful of female ambassadors, things mm. like that. That's where a lot of their energy goes. Um, and so they're doing things constantly throughout this period. Um, and also that that women have always been engaged in politics, mm-hmm. right? Not And not just a handful of women, but yeah. there's, you know, there the, those flyers, the rainbow flyers and the postcards um, that they're mailing out in the 1930s and 1940s, they're mailing out millions of copies of these things, right? There are, there are probably 100,000 women nationwide on Molly Dusen's mailing list, wow. at least. Yeah. Um, so this is women all over the country who are active in politics, thinking about politics, and always have been. So it's not weird. It's not unusual, yeah. right? Like it's not something that feminists did, um, mm-hmm. which often gets sort of talked about that way. Yeah, it's just it's part of the human condition to want to be involved in the structures that govern your life. Yeah, um, and so and women have been always been part of that. So I think that's the biggest thing because there's in the narrative this idea that women like pulled back from politics. Women weren't in politics for the part time period I'm writing about. Mm-hmm. That I I want to be like nope. That's not true. Yeah, that's really cool. And that makes me think about how we were talking about last time, memory and that role in history. Yes. And would you say then that it was strategic that these women were not highlighted and therefore for forgotten in history? Or do you think it was just the nature of the situation? So I think that's a little bit of both. Okay. Um, a couple of the women that I write about, India Edwards, the one who worked for Truman, most mm-hmm. notably, she publishes a memoir mm-hmm. in the 1970s, in the heart of the second wave of feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, she desperately wants to not be forgotten. Right. Mm-hmm. But she is. Oh, yeah. Part of that, I think, is on especially the more radical feminists mm-hmm. of the 60s and 70s. I ran into this. My first book talked about very traditional women's organizations like the League of Women Voters and the YWCA as feminist actors in the 1960s and 1970s. And I've been at conferences and I've given talks with women who were young women in the like women's liberation side of that movement Mm -hmm. at that time who really poo-poo what my women are doing. (laughs) And part of it is, and I've said this to other people and they're like, you're not wrong. Um, Part of it is the very natural instinct of young people to want to distance themselves from their parents as much as possible. Interesting. So if I'm up there and saying your mom was actually doing some feminist stuff when she went to her League of Women Voters meeting, that's challenging. Yeah. That's difficult. And to your own sense of self and your (laughs) own identity. And I think particularly in the scholarship, a lot of those women's liberation activists, are they're the people who created the field of women's history. Mm -hmm. They're a lot of the early practitioners of the discipline. Right. And so it has shaped the okay. scholarship in these yeah. particular oh, that's ways. Interesting. Um, so I think that's a lot of it. Mm-hmm. I also think the other piece of it is that people just didn't, at the time somewhat, and certainly later, didn't take women talking about politics to their neighbors, having the other, you know, school moms of school age kids over to talk politics. Um during the school day, didn't take that seriously. Oh, yeah. Didn't see it as as sort of real politics. The one exception to this is there's several really good books that talk about how um, women politically on the right, conservative women um, and right-wing women in the 50s and 60s are doing this a lot, mm-hmm. right? That their whole, and that they're building the conservative movement really out of their living rooms. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of good scholarship on that that's come out mm-hmm. in the past 10 years. Um, but it was much broader than that. 
women, regardless of their politics, were doing that. And it was an important part of how national policy got explained to people yeah. at the local level. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't have you've got your newspaper that comes out in the morning. You've got your half hour nightly, you know, ni- nightly news in the evening. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so having conversations with your neighbors is a huge part of how you understand what's going on right. yeah, politically. And so I think there's a there's been a tendency to not see that as important. OK. OK. That's really cool. So a, a mixed answer. But I totally like it makes sense in the context of what you're talking about. For sure. Very cool. Yay. OK. So continuing off of your work, what is next for you and your research endeavors? So next for me, I actually have a good answer to this. Um, the woman, Bertha Adkins, the woman who works for Eisenhower, is a lesbian. She is not supposed to be. The cover image of the book is going to be her sitting in the Oval Office with Eisenhower. He's sitting behind the desk. They're both have, they both are laughing, have these huge smiles on their faces. She's not supposed to be in that room. Mm. Right? Like all of the scholarship, if you know anything about LGBTQ history and the Cold War. <laughs> um, there's this thing called the um, called the Lavender Scare, right? Where queer people, especially queer people who worked for the government, were really persecuted. They were seen as security risks, mm-hmm. um, and were fired. You know, over a hundred. The one scholar who's sort of first studied this, over a hundred fired from the State Department alone on allegations of homosexuality. Mm. She is not supposed to be in that room. She is in that room. Um, she has a really interesting life. Um, she goes on after she leaves politics, after, uh, Kennedy is elected. Um, she becomes the headmistress of a school in Northern, of a girls boarding school in Northern Virginia. Her partner, uh, Winnie is on the faculty there. So they move there together. They then go back to Maryland where they're from. Winnie then teaches, um, some of the first women's history classes at the, at the college where she's on the faculty on the Eastern Shore of Maryland in the 1970s. Um, and so, I, the next book is just going to be a biography of the of the two of them. Like oh. I have I have found a lesbian power couple in mid century Washington. Um, they are not supposed to exist. And Winnie kept a typed diary oh, for wow. about half of the 1950s that I have access to. Oh. That I found right at the end of working on bringing home the White House. So mm. it's not really in there very uh-huh. much because I was that that wasn't this project, but yeah. that's the next project. Okay, wow. Um, and oh. so I'm going to sort of really follow on uh, with this and just really explore because they're not completely in the closet. Like uh, Adkins' birthday, her 50th birthday is during the 1956 uh, presidential convention. So she's, it's in San Francisco that year, I think. So she's in San Francisco. They want to give her, the White House wants to give her a birthday present at the convention. The White House gift officer calls Winnie to make sure they've got the date right. Wow. Like, yeah, very, very interesting. People know yeah. <laughs> who these women are. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so that's the next project. That's cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And typed diary, too, so you don't have to decipher any handwriting. This is why I work on the 20th century. Yeah, that's I'm not, funny. I'm not entirely kidding. Yeah. <laughs> My stuff is typed. Yeah. When yeah. I get handwriting, Eleanor Roosevelt's handwriting, by the way, by the way, is appalling. Oh, no. Um, and even the archivists are like, yeah, no, there's, you just have to, like, write over top of it. Wow, yeah. To try to, like, figure out what letters she was trying to make like it's really 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 hard (laughs) wow very interesting the more you know about that very cool yeah I took a class in early modern Europe and we had to read some primary sources that weren't translated and it was really tough oh yeah it took a really long time yeah yeah Yeah. all right we're gonna go to an ad break but we'll see you shortly after hello and welcome back to it's all history to me 
Weagle 91.1's History Radio Hour live at 7 a.m. on Wednesdays. If you're just joining us, we're here with Dr. Blair from the Auburn University History Department discussing her work as a women and gender studies historian. Um, and we're going to start the section off with some trivia questions. Are you ready? I am ready. <laughs> All right. Who was the first woman mayor in the United States? Oh, I have no idea. Ooh. No, <laughs> no clue. <laughs> this is a really interesting story. It's Suzanne Salter of Argonia, Texas in 1887. Salter was the member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the WCTU endorsed an all-male slate of candidates. This per- purportedly said that male residents of Argonia who devised a fake endorsement list with Salter as the candidate for mayor. The thought process was that Salter would get a few, vo- few votes, fail miserably, and people everywhere would view it as an utter failure for women. To their shock, Salter won and became the first female fa- mayor of Argonia. That's very cool. I did not mm. know that. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, second one. The UN adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 following the Second World War. Who was the chair of the Commission on Human Rights? I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's interesting because so she gets very involved in that work. And mm-hmm. the Gladys Tillett, who's the woman who's the head of the women's division that I write about mm-hmm. at that time, also gets very involved in UN work. Okay. Um, she's she's very uh, writes a lot in support of, of the UN and of those those uh, those issues and that approach um, to sort of organizing the post-war world. So that was that was how I knew that one. Before I worked on this book, I don't know that I would have guessed that one right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Tying it back into a lot of what we discussed on the first episode, why is it important that we study history and what advice do you have for current current and future history students of history? Um, so in the way of all academics, I'll take the second one first. Um, in terms of advice, I would say don't be scared to ask big questions, right? Mm-hmm. And I already touched on this a little bit. You have to if you start with a really huge question, you're going to find something interesting mm-hmm. because you haven't sort of pigeonholed yourself into like, I'm going to go look at this. And this is partially just how I like to work. I'm not all historians are like this, but I like going out and asking kind of off the wall questions. Like mm-hmm. I write, I like writing about stuff that nobody else has written about. Yeah. Um, rather than trying to find like a little space. Like, I don't know how the civil war historians do it. I honestly don't. <laughs> yeah, it would yeah. drive me insane. I don't know how they do it um, <laughs> because I'm much to me, it's a lot more interesting. So like I said, there was this, you know, 40-year block where the scholarship said, we're not talking about women in national politics. And I just went, really? Right? And nobody, I'm going against all of the literature. There's not a lot on it, honestly. Mm -hmm. But what is out there, I'm going against. And it was the same thing with the first book when it was my dissertation. When I was in graduate school, there was like one book on grassroots 1960s, 70s feminism. Everything else was about maybe 500 women in New York and Chicago and D.C. And the story that I always tell is that, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, my dad was a good 1980s dad, told me I could be whatever I wanted. Let me, you know, tag along after him as he was doing this and that. Um, my dad is uh, drove trains for CSX for 35 years and grew up in rural northeastern Kentucky. I knew that 500 women in New York City did not convince my father of a thing. <laughs> um, and so I was like something else is happening here outside of these cities that the scholarship is not talking about. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, let's just go see if we can find some other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, again, that's not all historians, but that's really how I like to work. And I think 
it lets you tell really cool and interesting stories yeah. if you ask a big enough question. Because there's all kinds of stuff that we haven't found yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing to go to you. Why is it important to study history? The act of writing history is always a series of choices, mm-hmm. right? Every historian has made exactly the same thought process that I just talked through for myself, right. has made choices about what they find interesting, what questions they mm-hmm. want to answer, what kinds of sources they want to use to answer that question. Um, and so that means, going back to something I talked about at the very beginning, because everything has a history, we haven't done all of it. Right. Um, yeah. There's always new stories to uncover, which is why it's important to keep studying history is because we have barely scratched the surface on so many things. I talk with my graduate students about this a lot. Like women's history as a field is only about 50 years old. And so we're just in the first stages of what's called the sort of revisionist of going back to some stuff that was written um, in the, you know, in the early years and being like, are we sure that's right? Um, maybe let's look at it again. Let's use some different sources to ask those same kinds of questions. Let's maybe look at those sources through a different lens. Um, and that, that's a constant process. That's a constant process because everyone's going to ask different questions and even like material is going to become available. So India Edwards, who I talked about, who's the one who Mm -hmm. works for Truman, she comes up pretty, she's got about half a chapter dedicated to her in a book uh, called On Account of Sex by a historian named Cynthia Harrison that was published in 1988. It's published in 1988. Edwards' papers at the Truman Library don't get processed and opened for research until the Mm mid-1990s. So even though Harrison knew India Edwards existed, knew who she was and what Mm -hmm. she did, she had access to a fraction of what I had access to to write about her. So it's not that Cynthia Harrison is wrong. Mm -hmm. She just didn't have all the stuff. Right. And and that's everywhere. That's everything. And so we have to – that's why we have to keep studying it. That's why it's not – you know, that's why it's a field of inquiry and a, and a discipline of scholarship is because there are always more stories to tell. And those stories are important. They tell us who we, you know, I'm an Americanist. They tell us who we are as a country. Mm-hmm. Um, they tell us who, you know, what has really been the actual history of, of our nation. Yeah. Um, and so you have to just keep asking big questions and keep finding those holes. That's a great answer. That's a great answer. Can I ask one more question? Do we have enough time for one more? Yeah, I think we're good. Okay. What advice would you give to budding historians that are at the college level that are beginning their work on research, trying to find what they're interested in? Do you have any words of advice to them? Um, So I will say two things. One is just to reiterate big questions. Mm -hmm. Don't, don't, and don't be scared of not knowing what the answer is going to be. Okay. Right? Yeah. Like, I did not, this book that I wrote is not the book that I planned to write when I went into the archives five years ago. Mm. Like, that's just not how it works. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, with the dissertation, it worked a little bit better. Like, I, I had this question about grassroots feminism. I knew groups like the YWCA and the League of Women Voters were very present in the scholarship up until about World War II, and then okay. they disappeared. Right. And I was like, okay, so let's put those two things together and see what's happening there, because I know those groups still exist mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. World War II. Um, so I would say, and then the other thing, the biggest thing, this is for any student of history and it's why you have to ask the big questions is you have to let the sources drive the bus. Okay. You have to let the sources drive the bus. Yeah. If you go in saying, I want to argue this. Oh yeah. That makes sense. And then find the sources that back that Mm -hmm. up. You're going to get a very skewed perspective. Right. You cannot go into it 
knowing what you want to argue. Yeah. You have to go into it knowing what question you want to answer. Okay. Yeah. And then just go where the sources take you. That makes sense. And they will not take you where you think they're going to. Right. Like right. almost never. Yeah. Um, will they take you? That's the point. Um, if we knew where they were going to take you, you wouldn't need to write the project. That, that's a great um, point. That's a great point. So, um, and so don't be scared of that. Don't yeah. be like, oh, this is not. And the other thing is, and this is something that I think undergraduates and graduate students also really struggle with is mm-hmm. once you've done the research, once you've asked the question, found the sources, done the research, you're the expert now. Own well, it. Yeah. Have confidence in your conclusions. Mm-hmm. Have confidence in your ability to say this is what this means. Mm. Because that's this was advice I got my first year of graduate school. And the mm-hmm. way that the guy who was the chair of the UVA history department is a historian named Chuck McCurdy. The way he phrased it was there are two ways to write history. You can write a lot of it could be argued that maybe it's possible that. And this is the exact quote from him. Or you can write it like it's gospel truth and let the next person prove you wrong. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and again, that's why, that's what the field is, right? Is us having conversations yeah. with each other. Us being like, eh, I don't know about your conclusion over there. Mm-hmm. I'm going to look at some of those same kinds of things and maybe come to a different conclusion. Yeah. So have the confidence that you know what you're doing, right? That's great once advice. You've, once you've done the research, you are now the expert. Yeah. Tell me what you found. Yeah, definitely. I love that. Well, thank you. Yay. Says Victoria, who's working on a big paper right now. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Woo. <laughs> yeah. Asking right. for me and the listeners. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Um, as we're waiting to wrap up, we're going to do some thank yous. First off, thank you, Dr. Blair, for coming on. We yes, really appreciate it. Thank it's you. great having you. Absolutely. Um, as always, thank you to the Auburn University History Department and our faculty advisor of the History Club, Dr. Schultz, for your continued support. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you to our researchers, Colby and Caitlin. We greatly appreciate all your hard work, um, even though the, view, the listeners themselves don't get to hear it. Um, thank you for Weagle for allowing us to have this space. And thank you to my sister. Um, this is just a general shout out because she got mad at me last time for not giving her a shout out when I found out my parents. And, but um, happy belated birthday. Uh, happy 16th. Hope it, hope it was great. Um, And as always, thank you to the listeners for listening in. We greatly appreciate it. And we hope to see you next week as we interview Dr. Follick from the History Department as well. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday at 7 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time.